True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The words echo around the courtroom. Guilty. Sentenced to life. The judge passes down the sentence with the utmost certainty that she's making the right decision based on the evidence placed before her. The moment doesn't seem real for the men, though. The hand of botched justice has just reached out and snatched their freedom away, and the fight for their lives has begun. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 113, The Wrongful Conviction of Tembekile Molaudzi. Now it's my monthly tip about what to watch on CBS Justice, the home of true crime on TV. And from the 16th of April, you can catch the channel premiere of the 10-part series Wrongly Accused. Enjoy a brand new episode every Sunday at 7pm, express from the UK, as investigative journalist Louise Shorter revisits some of the greatest miscarriages of justice in British criminal history. Cases that destroyed lives when people were wrongly accused of murders they didn't commit. I had the chance to chat to Louise for a special behind-the-scenes interview about her work on the series. So be sure to keep listening after the episode and watch Wrongly Accused on DSTV Channel 170 and Starset 222. It premieres from this Sunday, the 16th of April, and continues to Sunday, the 18th of June. And a huge thank you to CBS Justice for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. I really do like that after almost four years of doing this podcast, I'm still experiencing some firsts. I don't really know why it took me four years to get to my first episode about a wrongful conviction, but I think that has to do with the fact that this podcast has always been victim-focused. And perhaps it's taken some time for me to learn that victims don't always look the way we expect them to. I also think that I came into this podcast journey having very specific ideas about our justice system, what it was capable of, and how well it functioned. And although I'm still convinced of the guilt of at least 90% of the perpetrators I speak about on the podcast, some of the things I've learned have had me wondering exactly how many people end up in jail and are not really guilty. In researching this episode, I used several different sources, including the Vitz Justice Project's website, media articles, and a podcast by News24 on the case. So, let's get into episode 113, The Wrongful Conviction of Tembekile Moladzi. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. On the 3rd of August 2002, 
Warrants Officer Dingan Makuna finished his shift at Motutlang SAPS in the northwest province and headed home in his private vehicle, an Isuzu Bucky. As he pulled into his driveway, he didn't realize that he was being followed. Dingan's vehicle was on a hijacking syndicate's hit list. A group of men had been looking for a vehicle just like his for days, and as he arrived home, so did they. The crime would take just seconds to pull off. The men were experienced and ruthless. Exactly how many perpetrators were present that night would be a matter of debates going forward for many years. Police would later claim that the Toyota Cressida that pulled up behind Warrant Officer Makuna that night contained eight adult men. Dingan's teenage daughter, who sadly witnessed the crime that followed, could not put a number on it, but said there were many men. Two of those men shot her father three times that night, stole his service pistol and sped away in his bucky. The bucky would be recovered in pieces at a nearby chop shop. The service pistol was never found. Warrant Officer Dingan Makuna was rushed to the hospital, but the devastating wounds to his body were not survivable, and he passed away later that night. The murder of a police officer is undoubtedly a major case for all of the deceased officer's colleagues. As much as most officers want justice in all murder cases, it's far closer to home when the victim is someone you went into battle with on a daily basis, and may have even risked his life for you when necessary. Dengan's colleagues wanted justice for him, perhaps a little too much. Within days of Dingon's murder, detectives raided several known chop shops in the area and arrested two men, Tabo Mejeke and a Mr. Makubela, whose first name is not listed anywhere I could find. They would become known as Accused One and Accused Three. Majeke was interviewed by detectives, and despite initially claiming he had not actually fired the gun that had killed the victim, he did eventually admit to having some information for police. Detectives insisted that they were looking for at least eight men. They had two, so Majeke had to provide six names. There seemed to be little doubt that Tabo Majeke did have something to do with Dingan's hijacking and murder. He would eventually take police on a pointing out of various places where he said the crew had met up, and also the home of the victim. But Majeke couldn't seem to keep his story straight, and provided three different versions within just a few hours to detectives, then a magistrate, and finally to the officers accompanying him on the pointing out. And then he started to give them names. Although we don't know exactly how the name Tembekile Moladzi came to be on police radar, it very likely did come from Majeke, and the man would implicate all of his co-accused, except one, ironically, the man he was arrested with, in a court of law later on. In the weeks and months that followed Majeke's arrest, 
Six men were arrested, one by one. Each of those men would later claim to have absolutely no link at all to the crime in question, and most of them would go on to prove it. Tembekile Moladzi grew up in a blended family. When he was in school, he dreamed of being a doctor. In 1996, though, he dropped out of school when he was in grade 10 and started saving up and working to get his driver's license. In 2000, Tembekile got his first taxi and began working as a taxi driver. He became well-known in the local community. Not only did people see him every morning and afternoon when they used his taxi, but he was also pretty hard to miss. At very close to two metres tall, the man definitely stood out from a crowd, but most would describe him as a gentle giant. Although his size was intimidating, Tembekile was really just your average family man, and in 2003, he and his girlfriend were expecting their first child together when one night, the couple were awoken with hammering at their front door. I'm not quite sure I can imagine what it's like to be woken up in the middle of the night from a peaceful sleep to open the door and find several heavily armed police officers outside demanding that you put your hands in the air. I definitely can't imagine what it must be like to then have those same officers grab your hands, bend them behind your back, and snap handcuffs on you, all while telling you that you're being charged with murder. Murder? I'm thinking that if you know you were involved in something like this, you're definitely not surprised. Or even if you're just involved with a criminal element to some extent, for a really normal, everyday working man, a soon-to-be dad and partner. This must have seemed like he'd been pulled into a different universe. As Tembekile's pregnant girlfriend watched in horror, he was dragged off into the darkness. Over the next few days and weeks, Tembekile would discover that his name had somehow made it into a murder investigation in which a police officer had been killed. His alibi for that night was his girlfriend, and he denied having anything to do with the crime, but police weren't listening. Tembekile would also discover that he wasn't the only one this had happened to. In total, five other men had been arrested, who would eventually be found to have had absolutely nothing to do with the crime. But that revelation wouldn't come out in the investigation as one would expect, and not even in court. The truth would take far longer and require much more effort to reveal itself. Now, as I'm writing this episode, I'm thinking, how is this different to other cases I've discussed where a perpetrator's been arrested? If you think back to almost every solved case I've covered, where police pitch up to arrest the perpetrator, don't they always protest their innocence? And how many times have I said, well, I'm sure police wouldn't be arresting him if they didn't have the evidence to do so? And for the most part, that's true. In this case, 
They had the word of one of the men they had conclusively linked to a botched hijacking that had ended Warrant Officer Makuna's life. And it would be understandable that they would want to secure the whereabouts of these men and question them on that basis. And that's fair enough, I guess. The investigation doesn't always end when a perpetrator is arrested. In fact, it rarely does. But in this case... This accusation by a co-accused is all they would ever have against Tembekile Moladzi and the other five men arrested after the initial two. Not a single other piece of evidence would ever be found to conclusively tie these men to the murder. Tembekile had an alibi. Sure, not the most rock-solid one, it was just the word of his pregnant girlfriend, who had every reason to want to keep him out of jail. But there was no physical evidence. No gunshot residue on anything he owned. No DNA on the victim, or vice versa. And yes, those could be explained away by the long period between the crime and the arrest. But there were no fingerprints that matched Tembekile or any of the other five in either the Toyota Cressida that was found to be the vehicle used in the crime, or in Dingan's vehicle. There was also no eyewitness testimony. In fact, when Dingan's daughter, who had seen her father's attackers, was asked to attend an identity parade, she did not point out Tembekile, or any of the other five men. Now, as I mentioned, Tembekile is almost two meters tall. He's not a guy you're going to forget if he was at the scene of your father's murder. But the girl didn't even look twice at him. The other man who'd been initially arrested, which evidence did link to the crime, did not mention Tembekile or any of the other men's names. That man denied any involvement at all. As the days ticked by, Tembekile initially still held complete faith that any day the police were going to admit that they didn't have enough evidence against him and release him. But that did not happen. Instead, in late 2003, he and his seven co-accused went to trial in the Northwest High Court. A trial within a trial would be held to determine the admissibility of Majeka's statements to police as evidence. Since at the start of the trial, Majeka had decided to retract his statements and go back to claiming he had no knowledge of the crime, and as a result, no knowledge of any other people who may have been involved. The prosecution, though, wanted to use his initial statements as evidence against him and his co-accused. A critical error would be made in this portion of the trial, which would have long-standing effects. The statements Majeka had made were allowed in as evidence, but not as a confession to a crime, but rather as an admission of knowledge of a crime. But that wasn't the error. In allowing the prosecution to use the admissions as part of their evidence against Majeke, 
the judge was following the letter of the law. But the error came in in allowing that admission to be used as evidence against his co-accused. Especially considering Majeke was now claiming his entire statement to have been untrue. It would have been highly irregular to use an inconsistent witness's accusations against other co-accused. But the admission stood as evidence. Then the trial got even stranger. After Tabo Majeke's defense had rested its case, he applied to reopen his defense. He wanted to change his testimony. The judge allowed it, and Majeke, for some unknown reason, decided to implicate, under oath, the last six men who were arrested, the ones he'd implicated in his initial statement. He said that of the eight men seated in the defendant's dock, only he and Makubela, the other man who'd been initially arrested, had played no role in the crime, and all the other six men had been present when Warrant Officer Makuna was shot. At this point, anything that came out of Majeka's mouth should have been seriously questioned. He was flip-flopping on his story for a fifth time, and conveniently only not implicating himself and his friend. Not just that, but the backstory he gave in his second court testimony was completely different to both the story he'd given the police and the story he'd given the magistrate. Honestly, at this point, even the prosecution should have been questioning the validity of this man's testimony, but they didn't, and neither did the judge. On the 22nd of July 2004, Seven of the defendants, including Tembekele Moladzi, were found guilty of all charges against them. The eighth defendant had been granted bail and disappeared. He was one of the falsely accused six, and clearly didn't trust the justice system to do the right thing. Tembekele's son was born while he was on trial. He was just three months old when the judge handed down a life sentence to his father. Despite the unjust treatments he'd received thus far in the process, in the early days, Tembekile still held out the hope that his conviction would be quashed on appeal. But he would soon learn that he would have to first navigate a very big change that was about to happen when he moved from the awaiting trial section he was being held in to Khosi Mampu prison to begin serving his life sentence. Tembekile says that when he was processed at Khosi Mampuru, he and his fellow convicted offenders entering the prison that day were forced to strip down and perform squats in front of a room of laughing female prison staff members. Most often the strip search is part of a normal prison intake procedure and offenders are sometimes asked to squat to ensure that they aren't concealing anything in any body cavities. This search should be done in a manner that is as humane as possible, though, and certainly not, as Tembekile claims, as a spectacle for the amusement of prison staff. That 
would perhaps be the mildest abuse he says he suffered, though. He also explained that he and his fellow convicted offenders were then tortured, using shields that are used in prison riots and emits an electrical shock into anyone touching them. Tembekile's claims of torture in South African prisons are not isolated. Egon Oswald, a South African human rights lawyer, says that in his career he's investigated and represented offenders in cases of torture and abuse in almost every single prison facility in the country. In 2020, author Ruth Hopkins published a book called Misery Merchants, an expose of human rights abuses occurring at Mangaung, the privately run prison in Bloemfontein. This prison is run by the international security firm G4S, and allegations raised in this book not only confirm similar incidents to what Tembekile described having happened to him in Khosi Mampur, but have also become very relevant once again as public conversations turn to the escape of rapist and murderer Tabu Besta from that very prison. Tembekile sent pleas to as many people as he could think of in the months that followed. He sent letters to the office of the then-president Tabu Mbeki, who informed the man he could do nothing about his situation and he should exercise his right to appeal. He also sent letters to the Parliamentary Committee on Correctional Services and the Minister of Correctional Services regarding the abuse and torture he and his fellow prisoners were suffering. The overwhelming response was a hollow, echoing silence. But something was done in response to Tembekile's complaints. Now, of course, there's no way to prove this, but it seems very coincidental that throughout his years in prison, every time Tembekile made a noise about the treatment he was enduring, he was moved to a different facility, and torture and abuse began again in different ways. After his letters to various departments pleading for assistance, Tembekile was moved away from Pretoria to Ebongweni Supermax in Kokstadt. In Pretoria, he was able to see his wife and son more often. In KwaZulu-Natal, there was little hope of that. Also, his entire family was in Johannesburg and the Northwest. His support system. The people he needed to help him fight his case. In Kokstadt, he was once again tortured on admission and immediately sent to segregation. Tembekile spent several months in a confined, dark cell with no access to prison facilities. He received his meals in his cell and occasionally a guard would check on him. A prisoner who's segregated in terms of subsection 1b to f of the Correctional Services Act of 1998, quote, must be visited by a correctional official every four hours and by the head of prison at least once a day, and must have his or her health assessed by a registered nurse, psychologist or medical officer at least once a day, end quote. Tembekile says this never happened. A report by an organization called Ground Up on segregation facilities notes that it is almost standard practice for prisoners being transferred from Khosi Mampur to Ebongweni Supermax, 
to immediately go into segregation cells. No one could tell the organization why this happened, but it seemed clear from their investigations that many of the men incarcerated in these cells had been there for years. Segregation cells are supposed to be used to isolate highly dangerous offenders from the rest of the population and to ensure that they are not a threat to themselves or anyone else. Tembekile was serving a life sentence for murder, so he may have been considered a violent offender, but he had no disciplinary issues in Pretoria, and there was no reason for him to be segregated upon arrival in Corkstadt. When he was finally released from segregation, Tembekile set about preparing for an appeal. In order to accomplish this, he needed the transcripts from his trial so that he would have all of the exact details of the testimony and evidence that had led to his wrongful conviction. The first legal aid lawyer he'd contacted took several months to respond before informing them that they could not assist. The second legal aid lawyer, also after many delays, informed Tembekile that he had copies of the transcripts, but unfortunately his office had burned down and he could no longer assist him. It seemed very clear to Tembekile that he was going to get no further with lawyers appointed by the state. Whether or not they actually wanted to assist, their own lack of resources and case overloading meant they simply didn't see the appeal of a convicted murderer as a priority. And as much as appeals are annoying and painful for the families of victims and the public in general when convicted offenders undertake them, they are an important part of our justice process. The appeal process is an opportunity for a judge's decision to be tested and verified by other judges. And if I ever thought that the process was pointless and a waste, after Tembekile's case, I'll never think that again. Also, this difficulty he had in locating his transcripts made me wonder. Access to transcripts of a criminal trial for offenders is a right protected by the Constitution in South Africa. If you've been through a criminal process and been found guilty, you have the right to have access to the information that puts you behind bars. And that's fair enough. But honestly... I've never thought about the fact that offenders cannot actually appeal without access to their transcripts. And that made me think about the multitude of offenders who have never appealed their cases. As will soon become clear, having a private lawyer who's actually focused on your case makes all the difference. But you can only do that if you have the money to pay for one. So, how many offenders have never been able to appeal their cases, even if they had grounds to, because they struggled with legal aid lawyers and did not have the resources to access private lawyers? Something for me to think about the next time I say, well, if he or she was innocent, surely they would have appealed. It's just never that simple, is it? When Tembekile was transferred to Kokstadt, two of the men who'd been wrongly convicted with him were also transferred there, 
Boswell Mlongo and Disco Nkosi had been convicted along with Tembekile. Their stories very much mirror his, and you can hear more about what happened to them and the impact on their families in the News 24 podcast, Justice Delayed. Boswell and Disco's fight for justice would be inextricably linked to Tembekile's too. But at this point, as the men were at Kokstadt and trying to find their transcripts, it would be Tembekile who led the charge on getting things done. The three men realised that if they were ever going to get their appeals underway, they would have to try and fund a private lawyer, even if just for the short period it would take to find the transcripts. All three men came from working-class homes. Their families were suffering financially with them being incarcerated, and there was no way they could all have a private lawyer for the entire duration of their appeals. But if they could just get those transcripts, at least that would be one step in the right direction. So the three families, the Mflongos, the Nkosis, and the Moladzis, banded together and managed to raise 18,000 rand to pay an initial retainer for a private criminal attorney. This lawyer would locate the transcripts relatively quickly, but even then, there was a glitch. The trial transcript was supposed to be 1,023 pages long. The document handed over to the men's lawyer was almost 400 pages short. An incomplete transcript was just as useless as no transcript at all in terms of launching an appeal. It had taken two years for these incomplete transcripts to be located, and the men were back to square one. During this time, perhaps because he still wasn't just sitting back and quietly serving his sentence, Tembekile was once again relocated to another prison. This time, he found himself in Zornavata Correctional Facility. A little closer to home, which was helpful, and although he didn't know it when he was moved, it would be there that he'd meet one of the people who would be key to securing his freedom. Levi Mapakane had been a correctional services officer for 20 years when Tembekile Moladzi was transferred to Zornavata. The man had seen it all in his time, and he'd lost count of the number of offenders who'd claimed to be innocent. Levi had also built up some pretty good people assessment skills, and he could often tell when someone was lying to him. So when the tall, imposing-looking young man started telling the older prisoner guard that he was innocent. At first, he took it with a truckload of salt, rather than the customary pinch. For Levi, the world inside the prison was very different from outside. In those walls, you really couldn't trust very many people, and almost everyone he came into contact with there had done some pretty bad things. But... There was something about Tembekile that bugged him. The young man, despite only finishing grade 10, spent his days in the prison library studying the Constitution. He spoke with authority 
about the rights he and his fellow offenders had and saw them very simply as human rights and not something he wanted to lord over the guards' heads. And this young man was claiming he was innocent and the system was working against him. Of course, Levi's first question was whether Tembekile had used his appeals. And when he heard the answer, he was quite surprised. Then, when he listened to Tembekile's story about the type of evidence he'd been convicted on, something in Levi told him he needed to look deeper into this. In his spare time, Levi started to look into Tembekile's case. He researched the legal mechanisms that might be available to him to undertake his appeals. And one Sunday morning, while he was reading the newspaper with his coffee, he read an article about an organization, and the penny dropped. Established in 2008, the Witz Justice Project initially focused on investigating human rights abuses and miscarriages of justice related to the criminal justice system, integrating journalism, law, research, education and advocacy to raise awareness, expose injustice and campaign for important changes and reforms. Over the years, the organization has started to work with legal representatives to actually action assistance for people who have been wrongly convicted of crimes and the article Levi read in the newspaper that morning was about one of their first successes. Caroline Raffley was one of the first people at Witz Justice Project that Levi spoke with about Tembekile's case. The journalist was instantly intrigued, because she knew very well it wasn't often that a prison staff member actually felt there was credence to an inmate's claims of innocence. She went to visit Tembekile in Zornavata, and soon understood why Levi had been so convinced. Still, she was hesitant. But for the Witz Justice Project, whether or not they believed Tembekile was innocent was immaterial. The very fact that he and the other men were finding it impossible to access their trial transcripts was reason enough for them to get involved. This was a basic right for offenders, and so Carolyn agreed to help with that part of the process, and depending on what she uncovered along the way, Tempekile may or may not be on his own for the rest of the appeal road. The man was, of course, more than happy to take any help he could get. Raffley, with the assistance of the legal representatives that helped the Witz Justice Project, was able to action a motion that would compel Judge Monica Liu, the trial judge who'd convicted Tembekile, to have the trial transcript retyped in its entirety so that the men would have a full copy for their appeals. This motion was granted, and the retyping process went ahead. As Raffley began to understand what had actually happened during this trial, she started to think, that Tembekile and some of his co-accused really didn't belong in prison, and the project agreed to assist where they could beyond getting the transcripts. Their hands were still tied in many ways, though, 
and Tembekile still had to make a lot happen himself from his jail cell. But Carolyn would later say that she'd been very impressed by the man's knowledge of the law. She, of course, is not a lawyer, she admits, so Tembekile was teaching her a lot about the processes that could be undertaken to help get him out. One of the first things she agreed to help him with was gaining a copy of the police docket for the investigation. This would include vital information, such as the initial statements that Majeke had made and information about evidence or lack thereof against Tembekile. Carolyn arrived at the police station with a notarized letter from Tembekile in hand, authorizing her to act on his behalf in that regard. But Saps had bad news for Carolyn. The docket was nowhere to be found. And since it was, in their opinion, a closed case, they shrugged their shoulders and sent Carolyn on her way. Tembekile, though, was used to these speed bumps in the road and he got to work. After a letter to the chief of police, Ntati Mtetwe's office, in which he may or may not have name-dropped that he was working with some high-profile journalists, one has to use your resources, right? The dockets magically reappeared, and Carolyn got a call to say she could collect a copy. Now, armed with his full transcripts, which had eventually been produced, and a copy of the case docket, Tembekile could finally make his first appeal to the High Court in 2012, eight years after he'd first been convicted of murder. In April 2013, he and his co-accused were advised that their appeals to the High Court had been refused. The next step was the Supreme Court, but sadly, that appeal was dismissed too. After all of their hard work, Tembekile and his co-accused now only had one avenue left, the highest court in the land, the Constitutional Court. Tembekile quickly sprang into action to launch this appeal, but as it turned out, he may have been a little too hasty, and the mistake almost cost him his freedom forever. He'd become friendly with a fellow inmate, who in his previous life had been a lawyer, and he and the man sat down and began to draft an appeal to the Constitutional Court that they were sure would win them over. Unfortunately, what they didn't consider is that the Constitutional Court only hears matters of constitutional violation or bearing, not criminal matters necessarily. So if you're placing a motion before that court, it has to be framed in a very specific way. You have to show how your constitutional rights specifically have been violated. Tembekile and his prison lawyer had not done that. As a result, his appeal was dismissed. And the very last hope he believed he had fizzled out right in front of him. Boswell Mlongo and Disco Nkosi had not filed their appeals to the Constitutional Court at the same time as Tembekile had. Boswell specifically had been going through some serious mental health issues due to the constant refusals of his appeals, and he'd attempted to take his life on several occasions. 
after spending six months in a coma after one appeal was denied and he'd made an attempt at his own life, he decided that he had one last card left to play, and he was going to play it, come hell or high water. Learning from Tembekile's experience, he and Disco filed their appeal to the Constitutional Court differently. They told the court that their constitutional rights had been violated because they'd been convicted on the basis of inadmissible evidence, Majeke's admissions. The Constitutional Court found that the appeal qualified to be heard and appointed advocate Donrich Jordan to represent the men in court. In 2014, the Constitutional Court judges unanimously agreed that Ntlongo and Nkosi had been wrongly convicted and their constitutional rights had been violated. The court ordered that the men be released immediately. For Ntlongo and Nkosi, it was a bittersweet victory. They had their freedom, but they'd gained it on the back of a man who'd done a lot of the hard work around these appeals for them, and whose bad luck in the Concord the first time had actually helped them to make their appeal successful. Tembekile Moladzi watched as his two co-accused walked out of prison free men. The Witz Justice Project felt that this could not be the end, though. There were officially no further appeal processes for Tembekile to undertake, and another huge obstacle stood in the way. You cannot present the same case to the Constitutional Court with the same facts twice. So essentially, Tembekile had already had his chance, and that was that. State Prosecutor Nigel Carpenter, though, felt differently. He believed that he could successfully argue that for the Constitutional Court to not treat Tembekile's case in precisely the same way it had Boswell and Disco's cases would, in its very essence, be a violation of his constitutional rights. At the base level, there was no difference in facts between the cases of the three men. They'd all been convicted on the same inadmissible evidence, and Carpenter argued, in a motion to the Concord, that the court should make legal history and for the first time overrule its own ruling and grant Tembekile his freedom. For three long months in 2015, Tembekile waited for the Constitutional Court's ruling. If they decided not to overturn their own decision, then he was out of luck. He would never be free. But in a landmark ruling on the 26th of June 2015, a warrant of liberation was issued for Tembikile Muladzi. The Constitutional Court ruled that Judge Monica Liu had indeed made the incorrect decision in allowing the evidence of Majeke's admissions as evidence against his accused, and Tembikile should never have been found guilty of the charges against him. The Department of Correctional Services was ordered to immediately release the man from their custody. Sadly, Tembekile would spend his first night as a free man behind bars, because load shedding meant the department systems were down and his release could not be processed.
But on the 27th of June, Tembikile breathed air outside of a prison facility for the first time in 11 years. The baby boy who'd only just been born when his dad went away to prison turned 12 soon after Tembikile came home. He'd missed the child's entire early childhood. The world was a very different place than when Tembikile had left. If you think back, there were so many technological changes in the specific 11-year period while that man was in prison. Think about 2004. We didn't even really have Facebook at that time. And then think about how different the world already was in 2015. It must have been completely mind-blowing. A few weeks after his release, the Witz Justice Project held a party in Tembekile's honour, where he thanked those who'd walked the path with him, but those who'd played any role would also acknowledge that it had been Tembekile who'd been the real hero in his own story. He'd never given up, and despite having been let down by the system again and again, he continued to push back against it in the hopes that one day he might receive the support from it that he deserved. The media, of course, were enthralled with Tembekile's story of persistence and liberation, and he and Carolyn featured in a three-page spread in the U magazine about his struggle. The man admitted that he'd not always felt the great strength that was now his trademark. On many occasions, especially after the brutal torture he says he endured at the hands of prison officials, he felt like he had nowhere left to turn, and ending his life did cross his mind. It was his son, though, and partner, that continued to pull him through. He did not want his son growing up believing his father was a murderer, and he was desperate to prove his innocence as much as he was to gain his freedom. For a long time, Tembekile had felt completely alone in his journey. Sometimes, even after he'd gained the support of many of those who eventually helped contribute to his freedom, no matter how many people he engaged with or spoke to during the day, he still had to return to his prison cell at night. And he couldn't help but wonder why this had happened to him, of all people. In 2018, he got an opportunity to discover that what he had experienced was really the tip of an enormous international iceberg when he was sponsored to take a trip to Memphis, Tennessee, in the United States to attend an Innocence Network conference. There he met more than 200 exonerees, men and women, some who'd narrowly escaped death sentences, others who'd spent up to 40 years in prison before eventually being able to prove their innocence. As the first African exoneree to attend the conference, Tembikile said that this put his experience into context. He had to acknowledge that wrongful convictions and even torture and abuse in prison systems was not just a South African problem. In a country like the U.S., where he was sure human rights would have been so well protected, 
that such travesties would never have taken place. He heard stories and saw pictures of innocent men and women who had never been able to gain their freedom again. The system had so deeply buried them that they had either died of natural causes while still awaiting their release, given up and taken their own lives, or their lives had been taken from them in death penalty cases. It was a club that no one ever wanted to belong to. But there, in the most unlikely of places, he found a kinship. These people understood what it meant to have your life, freedom, and future stolen from you. When it rains, most people run inside. Tembekile Moladzi runs outside. He stands in the downpour and enjoys the sensation of the rain washing him clean. Too many times in the almost 12 years he spent in prison, he heard the rain falling outside of his cell and wondered if he would ever feel it on his skin again. I tried to get an update on where Tembekile is now and what he's up to for this episode, but I wasn't able to get that information in time. I have reached out to some people who I think should be able to help, and at some point I'd actually love to interview the man on this podcast, because I think his story needs to be told from his own mouth. He deserves that much. I wondered when putting together this episode how many people would find as much value in this one as in the others I've done. Sometimes we don't like to think about how badly wrong things can go. It's much easier to tie a bow on things and be glad the perpetrators are behind bars. But I think stories like this are vital to a well-rounded understanding of the true crime genre as a whole. If we want to be conscious consumers in this genre, then we can't just pick and choose the bits that suit our narrative. Tembekile's wrongful conviction is as much a part of South Africa's true crime history as all the truly guilty killers we've heard about. And it's so important because he's not alone. This was one case and at least five men were wrongfully convicted. How many others are there like this? I do believe that the vast majority of offenders in prison are guilty. But there are also other people like Tembekile who just got railroaded. And really, no one wins here. Because there's another side to this that we've yet to consider. Dingan Makuna and his family. Two men were, we think at least, correctly convicted of Dingan's murder. But if the group of offenders that night really was as large as police claimed, many got off scot-free. We don't even know if the two men who were correctly convicted were actually the trigger men. And as much as Tembekile Boswell and Disco's families suffered while they were in prison, I can only imagine how Dingan's family must have felt every time one of these men tried to appeal. To them, it must have just seemed like these men were trying to get away with murder, 
And really, we still don't know if they've been able to accept that these particular men were not really involved. South Africa, like many other countries in the world, doesn't like to admit that its justice system can make mistakes. And you'll hear me talk more about this in my interview with Louise Shorter in a bit. Most countries, in fact, have had to be dragged kicking and screaming into a place where any legal mechanisms exist for the correction of wrongful convictions. And if you think that doesn't affect you, think again. Tempekile was a taxi driver. He worked eight hours a day and went home to his pregnant partner. They were preparing for their baby's birth. Tembekile was saving up to give his son the best start in life he could. His biggest sword cross with the law at that point was a speeding ticket. He went to bed one night in 2003 a free man, having no idea that he would not do so for another 12 years. You know that feeling you get when you see a roadblock, even though you know you've done nothing wrong? Most people with some sort of healthy respect for authority get it regardless. It's that little tingle, that weird, irrational thought that maybe you might be in trouble. Now imagine that feeling multiplied by a thousand. Waking up from a deep sleep, banging on your door, shouting, handcuffs, cold steel, bars, charges, lies, courtrooms, torture... No one believes you. You're just a common criminal. You're a murderer. Stop lying. Stop wasting our time. In a blink of an eye. You're no longer just a working dad. No longer just the guy next door. Your life is snatched away. Your future obliterated. And there's not a damn thing you can do about it. Dingan Makuna was a well-respected police officer. So much so that his colleagues would do almost anything to ensure justice was done for his murder. And so, they did what they thought was right. And perhaps even when they doubted, they continued to convince themselves that the justice system worked. Because, perhaps for them... The alternative, that it doesn't always get it right. That sometimes innocent people are snatched up and tortured and imprisoned for no good reason was too painful a possibility to be. Tembekile Molaudzi, live in power and peace. Dingan Makuna, rest gently. Coming up, I had the distinct pleasure of interviewing Louise Shorter, a UK investigative journalist who's helped to reveal some of the greatest miscarriages of justice in British criminal history. I chatted with Louise about her work, wrongful convictions in general, and her work on the CBS Justice series Wrongly Accused. Here's my interview with Louise. 
I think that the entire concept of someone being wrongfully accused and convicted of murder is a very uncomfortable topic for most members of the public. Possibly because we'd like to believe, no matter what country we're in, that our justice system is infallible, because it's supposed to be to protect us. I asked Louise what her experience has been with the public reaction to some of the cases she's helped to reveal as wrongful convictions. I think the most common reaction from the public is that they can't believe that this actually happened to somebody, to the to the individual. That they they think that that it's impossible for somebody for for so many things to go so wrong in cases, and and so I think people sort of feel comfortable mostly with the sort of the idea that everything works pretty well. And and I have to say, I think by and large things do work pretty well. But in a system such as the criminal justice system, which has human beings at the heart of it, we are bound to have things that go wrong. And, and when we've got funding cuts and when we've, when we've got resources which are really overstretched, then it's really highly likely, I think, and increasingly likely that something will go wrong with an investigation. So, so I think that the public's reaction tends to be they can't believe it. And then when they then when they realize how things have happened, they become very anxious that we should make sure the system it, it puts things right. Um, a very wise chief constable of police said to me here in, in England one time that we police by consent in this country. And so we, you know, most people do do as they are told and as the law expects. Um, and that's how we do things. We, you know, we're, we're not a police state. But the trouble is that if if there is a, a general feeling that things aren't going quite as they should, not only that you might have innocent people that are being convicted, but also that the system isn't putting them right, isn't isn't correcting that, isn't quashing the conviction. Um, if, if that doesn't happen, then that fund- fundamentally it shakes people's confidence in the criminal justice system. And then what it, what is at stake there is is people just doing as they should, you know, through policing mm. by consent because they they don't trust the system. So so these cases of these stories are really important to tell. I think to make sure that that we we understand the responsibility that's placed on the criminal justice system to be properly resourced, to do thorough investigations, to make sure guilty people go to to prison and, and that innocent people don't. I asked Louise, what got her into this field of work. Was there a pivotal moment or a case that convinced her that this was something she needed to do? Well, when I was growing up as a teenager, there was a television programme on the BBC uh, throughout England and Wales, that, throughout Great Britain, where that was called Rough Justice. And it would it would carry out investigations on cases where somebody was in prison claiming they were innocent. And I used to watch that one as a teenager. And I just thought it was incredible that you could have journalists come along and, and find all this stuff out, which the legal system and the police investigation and the, the trial hadn't managed to get quite right. So I, just, so I thought that it was incredible that journalists could do that. And I just was really affected by the individual stories. And there were some really big, big cases happening when I was a teenager. So we had the Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four, sort of political terrorism sort of type cases where... Uh, people have been in prison for a long time and a lot of people believed that they were totally innocent. And there was there, you would often see articles in newspapers, television programmes, radio programmes, people saying they're not that, that you would even have the real the real uh, the people who were really guilty in those cases coming forward and saying that they'd done it. But still, they would 
those innocent people would stay in prison. And then there were also individual stories. There were people like cases like Stephen Kisco, which we feature in in Wrongly Accused, um, who was a lone man um, living at home with his mum, convicted of the rape and murder of a schoolgirl. And he he was a really um, really tall, gentle giant of a guy. And he had this tiny, tiny Ukrainian mother who just did, couldn't believe, wouldn't accept that her lovely, gentle son would do something so horrific. And she just kept on fighting and fighting and trying to raise awareness. And so there were cases like that that just kept being featured in the news in the news and through this programme, Rough Justice, that I thought was just incredible. Um, and so it was I was really inspired by that programme. And then and then something like 10 years later, I went and worked for the BBC in a totally different department in the accounts department, but just trying to get into programme making um, and then managed to sort of work my way across and, and get a foot in the door and started working for the TV programme Rough Justice. And, and so I and so I was that was sort of my way in, really. So it was through. And I found that actually when I was when I was then a producer on on that BBC programme for uh, well, I was at the BBC for 16 years in, in all. But I very often will find that I would phone an expert or phone a, a, a barrister or somebody I was trying to get to do some work, probably without getting paid for the benefit of the case. And they would very often know rough justice. And that was a sort of a way to open doors and get mm. people to do stuff. So it did a huge amount of good. In 2010, when the organisation that Louise Shorty used to work for called Inside Justice was established, I wondered what environment was that she was coming into with this organization. Was anyone else doing this work? And how was the organization and what it stood for received? Well, when I I left the BBC and and was then approached by by somebody who was an editor of a, of a newspaper for prisoners um, called Inside Time. And that the, he, the editor approached me and asked if I would write an article about the fact the BBC had axed this programme of justice. And all the other media programmes that have been around at that time over here were, they'd all been axed one by one, they'd gone. And so there were, and so there was nobody in the media that was really doing that kind of work. And, and this newspaper editor said to me, well, where, where do people go now? Where, where do prisoners go if they are protesting their innocence? Um, is there a media outlet where they can get this kind of uh, they get this kind of support and help and exposure? Um, and there wasn't. And so he he knew the charity world, and he said to me, "I think we should set up a charity and try and provide that that service to people." I thought it was completely nuts, to be honest. I thought I couldn't believe that a trust or a foundation would give money to to helping people, you know, people in prison that claim they're innocent. I just couldn't see that you could get funding, but we did get it. It took us nearly three years, but we did manage to get the, the funding. Um, and I think the, the sort of general, the, the, the general reaction from people was one of gratitude and relief that there was going to be a charity again that would provide that kind of free legal expertise and free scientific expertise. We had quite a big shift over here at, at that stage. So we used to have something called the Forensic Science Service, which was the national forensic provision um full of you know just 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 chuck a block full of experts who would do forensic work for defense teams as well as the prosecution and it was internationally renowned it was world leading in terms of its expertise and its research and it was just a fantastic um body but it was axed it was the the funding was cut by government and it was axed it was closed you know within a very short period of time and so that meant that a lot of people working in the defense world 
just couldn't get access to forensic scientists because they were working for labs that only did police work. You know, there's not a lot of money in defence work. So it's just very hard to find forensic help if you are now, if you're sort of, you know, on the defendant's uh, side of a, of a trial. And so I think the establishment of the charity was really, really was, was, you know, greeted with a lot of relief by people that there was access to experts. But also I think there was certainly a, you know, it's got harder and harder in my view to be able to do work now on wrongful convictions cases than it, than it was five, 10, 15 years ago. So and I, so then now when I started doing this work, which is 25 years ago, I started doing miscarriage of justice work. And at that stage, you know, you could get a, you could get access to police exhibits. You could send them off to a forensic lab and, and get some new tests done. You know, you could pay for that work yourself for, for the for the prisoner, for the, per, the person in prison. Mm. Now, most police forces, they're sort of like their default position is not to release it anything. So it's got harder and harder here to actually get access to material and to be able to do testing. So we're in a sort of quite so so relief, I would say, was the reaction from people that were working with prisoners and working on on for defendants. But there's been a sort of a general closing down and restriction of what you can do in terms by it, it, as far as the authorities go. I wondered how Louisa decided which cases to take on and which people they were unable to assist. Well, I always think that what you need to do is to get a really clear idea of all of the evidence that was there at trial. You know, don't just listen to what the person in prison is telling you, but get make sure you get a really clear, objective view of everything. And and the single most important thing you need to do, in my view, is to identify what is the very best piece of evidence that the prosecution had. You know, what is their strongest? What is the strongest thing the prosecution had against the person in prison? Because because if because you you know, you need to work out basically whether or not the person who says they're innocent is just is whether there might be any truth in it or whether they're wasting your time because everybody in prison says they're innocent you know <laughs> everybody is going to use that line so the so the, the trick is to is to sort of try and work out who might actually be tra- telling the truth so if you can identify the strongest piece of evidence that means that you can then work out whether or not that piece of evidence is good because if that piece of evidence really is strong and really is solid then you probably don't want to spend your time and energy dealing with that case there's probably a more deserving case so so that that's the way I go about it you know let's let's sort of see how this person got convicted what's the best thing the prosecution had then test whether or not that evidence is solid is there room is there merit in that is that if they're relying on a DNA test for for something is that did they use the right DNA test is there a chance that it could have been contaminated is the DNA from something which actually looks suspicious but doesn't actually tell you whether the person committed the crime or not mm-hmm. you know or was it on an item that was in the scene just as a sort of a secondary thing you know in, coincidentally rather than it being absolutely crucial to the murder itself or whatever it might be so so yeah test the evidence and and then look to see the next thing that 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 I always do, and that the charity and justice also still does, is to identify what what could be done that wasn't done. You know, we've we've had a lot of funding cuts in terms, particularly in terms of forensic science. Police police teams are really overstretched here, and so investigations may not have happened that should have done. So we always try and identify. You know, what if if you could run the case again? What piece of work should could be done that wasn't done? 
and was you know and then maybe that piece of work wasn't done just because of funding you know not because of it being a good investigative reason so then try and get that piece of work done Although today we put a lot of stock in physical evidence and and the forensic sciences, we're also seeing many of these investigative techniques being proven to be essentially junk science. I wondered what Louise's experience had been with how significantly poor scientific investigation had contributed to wrongful convictions. I think that the the way that the the courts... Uh, and the police deal with forensic science is is a, is a is a difficulty. You know, forensic science can be the best the best thing, the best friend for a, a police investigation, but it can also go horribly wrong. And I I think the real real difficulty is that there is a real disconnect in my view between the way that the law deals with forensic science and the way that forensic science deals with forensic science. So forensic scientists they are they are open-minded they think that that if you if you understand that something that we used to believe was true is actually not true we've got better knowledge now and actually that's not what the science tells you very often a very good scientist anyway will will believe that that's still valuable knowledge even if it knocks out what they previously thought they knew they still believe that that is progress that new understanding that new learning is progress whereas I think the the law often it has difficulty has problems with that because the law wants things to be to the to be it, you know the, the law sort of believes in this principle of finality so you have a trial and that should be the last thing and and we you know we we don't really want to have appeals in most cases mm-hmm. by and large you know the trial should be the last thing that happens and so so there is a disconnect i think between the way that the science and law deals with it so i i work on cases here where we can tell we can show clearly absolutely that the way that the science was explained to a jury was wrong they were given a false impression of what it meant the scientists misled them at the time maybe unwittingly maybe because their knowledge wasn't there at the time but nevertheless the jury convicted on a false basis but the but the court of appeal very often doesn't really want to deal with that because it worries about well, if we've, you know, if we if we go back and we say that the jury was told that bit wrong in in that case, then are we going to have to do that in lots of cases? And are we going to get loads of appeals? And it, are we going to be overwhelmed? So it so the, so look, the legal process here um, doesn't like dealing with science very often. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm I, I should also say that we absolutely do have cases here where there is a belief that that science can tell you a certain thing, and actually there just wasn't enough knowledge about. About it, the, the, the first case that we show in wrongly accused is about um, features this this particle science. These all these tiny grains of stuff that were found on a van seat that were also on her on the victim's skirt, and so the finding of these particle types in two locations, the scientist said, meant that she'd been in that van, and that was just nonsense. There was no scientific basis to that, and eventually, the, you know, the, the court did put it right, and they got the conviction quashed, but not before the guys had spent six years in prison. So there is there it. You no, know, it's it's a difficult thing, I think, because because a, a scientist, an expert, a forensic scientist or an expert in anything, whether they're expert in CCTV or cell site evidence or whatever it might be, they can stand up in court um, and they can give an opinion based on the fact that they are an expert. So so they are in a special category where they can they, they're allowed to say what they think of something. They can give their opinion. Most other categories of witnesses can't do that. So uh, somebody who sees something. They can't say what they thought it meant. They can just say what they saw. An expert is in a special category. And so that means that we have to be very, very careful 
that those experts are talking about, you know, something that, that is a really on a really good solid foundation. And I think I think too often they don't, and that they, 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 it's not clear. They're not on a solid scientific basis, and that's really dangerous. I asked Louise what her experience has been of the jury system. Does she think that the system contributes or reduces possible wrongful convictions, or does it play no role at all? You know, we have a jury system here in England and Wales of where we have 12 members of the jury, and the idea being that we will balance out any biases between, you know, by having such a sort of a, a, a big pool. Um, we, we can convict on a majority of 10 to 2, um, and I think that, you know, I, I I worry about that sometimes. I have certainly seen, I, I have not done, sorry, let me go back. I have certainly got a feeling, a sense over 25 years of doing these kind of cases that there are occasions when juries reach verdicts on a majority on a Friday afternoon before, you know, I've had cases where there was a big sporting fixture that was about to start and the jury suddenly reached a 10, you know, a majority verdict just before that started. Or, you know, so I, I worry about about juries, you know, wanting to get out of the room and just wanting it to be over. And so somebody buckles and they, they come in then with a, um, a, you know, a majority verdict. I worked on a case some years ago where a guy is in prison currently for serving a minimum of 30 years for murders. Um, and I made a, did an investigation about his case and, and put out a programme where we spoke to the foreman of the jury who said, if I if I had heard the evidence that you found in your investigation now, I would never have convicted. So that would have taken it to a 9-3. And then another juror came forward after that and said, you know, I too wouldn't have convicted if I know what I know now. So that would have taken it to 8-4. But the guy's still in prison. He's still inside. So I... so. Uh, you know, I I think by and large, I think juries are a good system. I you know, I think it's a it's mm. a good system, but I I worry about that it you know just just pushing somebody when it gets to a majority to to buckle and then you've got your majority and that's it the, the life sentence is in. But one other thing I'd just like to say about juries is that um, I I listened to a talk by by a law professor one time and he was saying that. We we um, he'd asked for a kind of a, a show of hands in the audience to to how what does sure mean when you have to reach a verdict of being sure? So we we used to have something here called you'd, you'd have to be, be guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. That's what it's always been traditionally been called. It's, we've now changed it over here to that you have to be sure of guilt. Mm. So it's the same thing beyond you know what, what does it mean? How, how what what does sure mean? What does beyond a reasonable doubt mean? So this law professor ask the audience for what kind of percentage do you think it means to be sure? Now, if I was standing trial for life and I, you know, I wanted people to be sure, I would want that to be certainly over 95%, more like 98%, that, up in that kind of way. He found that his audience thought, thought that their average was around about 85%. Now, I find it horrifying and really shocking that juries might be convicting oh. on the basis you know, of, of that kind of, that those kind of odds. It's become very clear over the years across the world that no justice system is exempt from a certain level of favour towards those with resources and historic, racial or other privilege. I wondered what Louise's experience in the UK had been with this. 
does money and other forms of privilege automatically buy you a better experience with the justice system? I think it's certainly true to say, without a shadow of a doubt, that people who are less able to, you know, whether it's through resources or their own intellect or whatever it might be, though, though pe- there are people who are disadvantaged are in life are hugely disadvantaged by by the criminal justice system. They are, they're vulnerable, aren't they? You know, they are to the you know whether it's that they can't properly express themselves during the interview, the police interview, whether they can't whether they are fighting prejudices in terms of there being an assumption that if you look a certain way or you behave in a certain way or you come from a certain background that you are likely to be guilty of this crime to not being able to gather the support and the resource that you need to get people on your side to be able to help you. Huge injustices that that are, will ha- have happened throughout history and I'm so, sad to say are still alive and, and present today. Mm. When anyone is killed, we automatically look at those closest to them, and often that includes the spouse or intimate partner of the victim. In the first episode of Wrongly Accused, Louise and the other experts acknowledge that this is the natural and logical progression of an investigation. I wondered how often Louise saw that blinkered focus on the partner becoming problematic and contributing to wrongful convictions. I think it's common and I think it's understandable to an extent because, you know, if, if women are murdered, then then most of those women are murdered by somebody who is is known to them. You know, it's a, that, that's the sad truth of the of, of who's going to likely to to be attacking and murdering a woman. Is it somebody who's in her life currently or was in her life you know, before? So it's kind of understandable, I suppose, that an investigation focuses in that way. But. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think in our, that first case that we feature in Mongley Accused, it was, it, there was a belief by the police that if it wasn't the boyfriend who was with her on the night she went missing, then it had to be a random stranger. And they just didn't believe that that was likely. But that's who it turned out to be. In the case that we um, feature where the girl, where Timothy Evans, where he was hanged, um, he was the husband of the of the woman who was, was found dead. You know, it just turned out there was a serial killer living in in the same house in a different flat. And with the Joanna Yates case that we feature in Mongley Accused, there was a young woman who was murdered and and it it, it turned out it, it was it was a um, a man who was living in the neighboring flat uh, who was the real killer. Um but they but the police zoned in on on the landlord who lived in the same building because they thought that he was peculiar. They didn't they and that that came that case came down to the way he presented. I mean, in that case, he was a, a highly intelligent man, a really compassionate man, a man who had been involved in all kinds of um, um sort of safe neighborhood schemes involving the police and communities. You know, he was a pillar of the local community. Um, but the police thought he was odd. And so they they really honed in on him. And I think in his case, it was a sort of strange, the strange sort of flip of the of truth in that one was that normally it's somebody who's quite vulnerable and can't really express themselves. In his case, he was very intelligent and he was able to speak back to the police and, you know, and to to um, to challenge them about, about assumptions they were making. And I think that riled them. I think it, it you know, got under their skin and they they thought that that was odd behaviour for somebody to be to, to to do that with. 
but yeah, it, it's it's um, it, very often it's a blink of an investigation that that leads police down the wrong path. I find it interesting to compare other legal systems to ours in South Africa. And I've noticed that many justice systems around the world focus on convictions and have very few avenues for exoneration processes beyond limited appeals. I asked Louise whether she feels that the UK allows more for the possibility of wrongful convictions or does their own system also need to be more robust? We, we have here in, in England and Wales, we have something called the Criminal Cases Review Commission, the CCRC, which is a publicly funded body, um, which is uh, independent of government, uh, although government it has a sort of government sponsoring department that makes sure that it's spending taxpayers' money appropriately, but it op- its operations are dealt with independently. And that 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 commission was set up in the late 90s. 1990s when we had a a rush of of wrongful conviction cases that were suddenly being people were being released here but there was a there was a collapse in confidence in the criminal justice system here because it was clear to everybody and there was a lot of reporting that innocent people were, were in prison and the appeal system wasn't dealing with it appropriately and so we had we had hordes of people out on the street there was a collapse in confidence which un, which really undermined the, the the police's ability to do their their job uh, because nobody believed that it was working properly, effectively. So the CCRC was set up, um, and that's a very good thing. You know, we have this uh, this formal body which has statutory legal powers to be able to go and get evidence and to be able to do new tests, and that's good. Then we, you know, we are we are advantaged here by having that. The difficulty is that it's that the funding has been really cut from it. Um, it's become uh, the organisation is sort of often criticised for not being really investigative enough it, it sort of lacks investigative curiosity so there's been quite a lot, lot of work done that's suggested that actually it doesn't it doesn't get out there and find stuff it, it sort of wants to it wants to have evidence presented to it on a plate that's going to lead to an appeal and there is a criticism that's quite often made currently which is that unless it feels that if it does certain investigations it will lead to an appeal it won't bother doing the investigations but very often in these cases you don't know what you're going to find until you do it. And so to be to have to have a guarantee of an outcome that's going to lead to an appeal means that, by and large, most stuff won't get done. So it, the, the, we, we do have a solution now post-appeal for, for how people can get back again, get their, get, and get their cases, um, get their convictions quashed. But it is increasingly attracting criticism. And that, that criticism is therefore undermining confidence in the criminal justice system again. So... Wow. We have we have something, but it's mm. it's it's starting to go wrong. I think it was a great pleasure interviewing Louise Shorter. Don't forget you can catch Wrongly Accused on DSTV Channel One Seventy and Starsat Two Twenty Two. It premieres from this Sunday, the sixteenth of April, and continues to Sunday, the eighteenth of June. And a huge thank you once again to CBS Justice for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Thank you for listening to episode 113, The Wrongful Conviction of Tembekile Moladzi. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, 
but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. Mm-hmm.